Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. This is a reading from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is far more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, how many of you have ever heard the term languishing? Literally, languishing is a gardening term, a horticultural term. It refers to a plant that's struggling to thrive. But it's also a mental health term. And about halfway into the pandemic, many mental health experts were searching for a description of the dominant emotional mood folks were feeling in the pandemic, and languishing was it. And here's what, here's what one writer writes about languishing, um, Adam Grant from the New York Times. He says this, it wasn't burnout. We still had energy. It wasn't depression. We didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. And it turns out there's a name for that, languishing. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. And it might be the dominant emotion coming out of the pandemic. But you know, I just want to be real here this morning. Uh, For some of us, even if languishing was the dominant emotion coming out of the pandemic, for many of us, it hasn't gone away. Many of us are still languishing. How, how many of you, raise your hands, how many of you have ever felt blah, right? How many of you have ever felt meh recently? M-E-H, meh. Resigned or joyless or aimless. You know, we live in the wealthiest, most abundant moment in world history, and yet 
many of us, so many of us in our culture are languishing. But what if we didn't have to languish? What if instead of an empty feeling on the inside, we could feel joy? Here's something really interesting about this word languish. There's, there's another definition of it, more, a more literal definition. Um, here's what one dictionary says. To languish is to suffer from being forced to remain in an unpleasant place or situation. As in, here we are languishing in a hot room on, on a Sunday morning. Or, or he's been languishing in jail since 1974. It, this other literal definition of languishing would actually apply to the Apostle Paul when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, the letter we're, we're looking at today. Paul had been in prison already for two years in Caesarea, and he'd spent months in transit on a prison ship to Rome, and then he spends two more years a prisoner in Rome awaiting trial. Paul was languishing in the literal sense of that word, he, and he had every re- reason to languish emotionally. This, this was real suffering. He was falsely accused He was unjustly confined. He was chained to his guard. He was awaiting trial for years. He he wasn't even sure whether he would live or die. And so if any of us have a reason to languish, Paul did. You know, Paul was not languishing spiritually. He wasn't languishing emotionally. The dominant theme in Philippians, this book Paul wrote from prison, is joy. Paul Paul uses a variant of that word joy 16 times in four short chapters, often repeating it. He says, rejoice, I'm rejoicing. And he commands the Philippian believers to rejoice, even though they're worried sick for his well-being. He says, rejoice with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice in chapter four. In prison, Paul is full of joy. And it's a resilient joy. It's a joy that not even false accusations and unjust confinement, even the threat of death, can snuff out. Isn't that incredible? How could that even be possible? And yet what I want to say to us this morning is that our lives were meant to be marked by the same resilient, unstoppable joy that Paul had, even in our suffering and our pain and our trials and our grief. If if I were to tell you that you could have a joy that triumphs over your circumstances, a joy that blooms, even thrives in suffering, would you be interested? That's called a pin down question, by the way. That's what I but that's what I want to talk about this morning. As it turns out, for those of us who who whose lives are Our followers of Jesus, joy is our birthright. It's our inheritance. And not just any joy, but this kind of joy Paul had, the kind that blooms in suffering. Now, many of us don't claim this inheritance, this birthright, but but God wants us to. And one of the reasons I believe the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write the book of Philippians is to open up a way for us to lay hold of this joy, that same joy that oozed from the pores and the writings of Paul. You know, this guy was chained to a Roman guard and yet give him a pen and four short chapters and over and over 16 times he's going to talk about joy. So how many of us this morning would like some of that joy this morning? Who wants your life to be marked by that kind of unstoppable joy? By the way, we're, we're spending this summer in the book of Philippians and our theme 
this summer like Paul's was, is joy. Last week, Pastor Andrew gave an overview of Philippians, and he talked about rejoicing in the community of believers. But this morning, I want to zero in on this idea of rejoicing in our sufferings, how we can have resilient joy even in the midst of pain and suffering. And this morning, I want to share three things that we have to understand if we want our lives to be marked by resilient, unstoppable joy. Three things. And here's the first. Here's the first thing we need to understand to have a life marked by resilient joy. We need to understand where joy doesn't come from. Joy, point number one, is not rooted in the how of our lives. Joy is not rooted in the how of your life. In other words, joy is not rooted in your circumstances. Joy is not a byproduct of our circumstances or our life situation. It's not a byproduct of the externals of our lives. Why do I say that? Well, look at Paul. Look at Paul. His joy flourished in spite of his circumstances. Ever since Paul started following Jesus, he had a difficult life. He talks about it at length in his first letter to the Corinthians. Five times he says he received from the Jews the 39 lashes. By the way, they, t- they gave him 39 lashes because the idea was that if you got 40 lashes, it would kill you. So he got 39 lashes. It's kind of like, you know, you're buying a car for $39,999. <laughs> it sounds less than 40, but not by much. Three times he's beaten by rods. Once he's pelted with stones. He was shipwrecked three times. He spent a night and day on the open sea. How how, how t- horrifying uh, would that be? Um, he was constantly on the move. He was constantly in danger. He went without sleep, hunger, and thirst. I mean, Paul, poor guy. I mean, he was just, had a difficult life. And by the time he gets to Philippi, he's already been basically in jail for about three years. And that's, he's waiting to stand trial before Nero. Um, who eventually would sentence him to death in 64 AD. Um, And he doesn't know. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And yet he's full of joy. See, Paul's joy overcomes his circumstances. Joy is not a byproduct of our circumstances. Joy is, is not determined by our bank account or our weekend plans or whether we love our job or or even whether good things happen to us, because good things can happen to us and we can still feel empty. We can still languish. You know, we like to think that if we have enough money or free time or marry the right person or take the right vacations or rack up the kind of experiences we want or go to all the best restaurants, it's going to bring us happiness and joy. You know, recently I, um, as I was thinking about the sermon, I I was looking around on the internet, and I, I saw an image of a of a book cover, a biography that came out about, how many of you remember uh, Anthony Bourdain, the celebrity chef? He traveled the world, he, he had tasted the greatest foods, it went to all the most amazing places, people lived vicariously through him, and this, it's such a powerful title, you'd see the cover here, the title of, of his biography is called Down and Out in Paradise, just think about that for a minute, he's in paradise, it, you know, all the greatest experiences. You, if you were a, if you were a Enneagram Seven, I mean, this guy is living your dream, and yet he was down and out. 
in paradise. And, uh, and he's not the only one. You know, I, I think we've quoted this quote many times. Jim Carrey uh, once said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so they can see that it's not the answer. There's this guy, Viktor Frankl, a famous Austrian Jewish psychiatrist, lived during the 20th century, um, unfortunately was, was imprisoned along with his whole family in a Nazi concentration camp and, um, and uh, survived even though his parents and so many of his family and friends died. Um, but one of his life's work, uh, one amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning, um, he wrote, uh, Frankel in his work reflects deeply on the relationship between a, a, our inward emotional state and our external circumstances, especially in uh, times of suffering. And here's what he noticed. He noticed that some people faced with profound suffering, uh, like the concentration camp, went into it with their heads held high and somehow seemed to triumph inwardly over their circumstances. Um, you know, he, he writes this, he says, Man is that being who invented the gas, the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, he is also that being who entered those chambers upright with the Lord's Prayer or the Shema Yisrael on his lips. And he, he writes this as well. He says, we who lived in the concentration camp, he's speaking from experience. We can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. You know, some of these prisoners triumphed inwardly. They triumphed spiritually. They were victorious in these camps spiritually, even if they didn't survive. But meanwhile, others, others languished and became depressed and despondent and gave up. This, it's the same outward circumstances, but a totally different outcome in a person's soul. And Dr. Frankel reflected on this. He was struck by it. And, um, he, he noticed this disconnect. And then after the, the, the war ended and he got out and he began traveling, you know, um, uh, speaking at universities in the United States and, and uh, post-war Europe, he noticed a similar disconnect um, in these places of abundance between joy and our circumstances. He noticed that people could have everything they wanted and yet have no joy. He wrote this uh, about this. He said, ever more people today have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. And so Dr. Frankel's insight is that the deep sense of well-being in our souls, which we call joy, is not forced on us or denied us by our circumstances. He's, and listen to this. Listen to what he says. He says, between stimulus and response, right, between the the outward experience of our suffering and our response to it, there is a space. And in that space is the power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and freedom. But there's this power to choose a response. In other words, what he's really saying is that joy is actually not determined by our circumstances. Joy, joy is not rooted, friends, in the how of our lives. So that's the first point. So if joy is not based in our circumstances or the how of our lives, where does it come from? Where is it rooted? Where does joy come from? And so this is the second thing I want to, we need to understand uh, about joy. Joy is not rooted in the how of our lives. Joy is rooted 
in the why of our lives. Joy is rooted, in other words, joy is about having a meaning and a purpose and aligning our lives with that purpose. Here's what Viktor Frankl observed. He says this, he says, there's nothing in the world I venture to say that would so effectively help one to survive in the worst conditions as the knowledge that there's a meaning in one's life. And you think he's not talking just like abstractly thinking about, you know, oh, what might get people. This is based on his experience for years in Nazi concentration camps. This is empirical. He says, a man who becomes, con or a woman, or a child, who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears towards a human being who affectionately waits for him, or to an unfinished work, will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why for his existence, and will be able to bear almost any how. See, our joy is not rooted in the how. Joy is rooted in the why. And then he says, reflecting on his time in America after the war, he says, it's a characteristic of the American culture that again and again, one is commanded and ordered to be happy. And we may not think of it that way, but think when people come to you and they say, hey, how, how have you been? How are you doing? The answer is, oh, I'm great. I'm fine, right? We're expected to be happy. But here's what he says. Happiness cannot be pursued. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness can't be pursued. It must ensue. Happiness can't, is not something you can pursue. It ensues. What, he says one must have a reason to be happy. Happiness is the, and by happiness, he really means joy, is the outcome. It's the byproduct. It's the fruit of having a reason for joy. In, order, in other words, in order to, be, to have what we're calling joy, we have to have a purpose, a reason, a why. We have to be connected to a why that's deeper than our circumstances. Joy isn't rooted in the how of our lives. Joy is rooted in the why of our lives. Joy comes from having a meaning and a purpose and living in line and connected to that meaning and purpose. And when we have this, it's like I was, um, the other day Sarah and I were down in Newport and I was looking out at the harbor. Uh, by the way, if you ever get the chance, go to the Vanderbilt Hotel and there's a deck restaurant up there that has the most amazing view. You can see all these boats out there on the harbor and, uh, and they're all anchored. They're moored, right? They're, they're connected to an anchor, a heavy object on the bottom of the waves. It doesn't matter how big the waves are, how big the storm is, that thing is rooted. And, and so when we're attached to our purpose, it's like a boat that's securely attached to a joy anchor. And there's no storm, wave, weather, not even imprisonment, no weather patterns that life throws at us that can separate us from our joy. And so back to Paul in prison, this deeper why, this anchor, is what Paul had during his Roman imprisonment. And so this leads to the final thing I want to share about joy. When we choose Jesus as our deepest why, the result is resilient joy. Resilient joy is the natural byproduct of making Jesus our deepest why. The reason Paul rejoices is because he's made Jesus his deepest why. You know, almost anything can be our deepest why, our deepest reason for being. 
right? It doesn't have to be Jesus just because we show up at church. Uh, it can be, there's a lot of things that creep in there and become our wife. For some of us, maybe, you know, it's to succeed in life or in business or as a parent. For some of us, it's not to repeat the mistakes that others have made or our parents have made. Or some of us want to make a contribution to the world. Some of us want to be famous. Some of us want to be wealthy or live comfortably. Some of us want our kids to attend, you know, Brown University or Harvard. Some of us want our kids to make up for our own failures. Or some of us are, are desperate to find uh, a, another per human being or to please another human being, to cater to their deepest why. Some of us, our deepest why is just to escape or to get through the day or to be entertained or to get away from our own pain or our own anxious thoughts. Some of us aren't even aware of what our deepest why is, but you know, perhaps the most important thing about you is your deepest why. What, what is your deepest why? What's your deepest purpose? Jesus was Paul's deepest why. Just, just look what he says here. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, they're writing to him because they are worried sick about him. You know, he's, he is in house arrest, chained to his guard. You know, and to add insult to injury, I mean, during house arrest, Paul is expected to pay for his own food and rent and you know, gas bills or whatever they do in Rome. Um, and so the, the Philippians send Epaphroditus to bring him, you know, some cash, money, so he can, you know, pay the bills. And, but they're, they're worried about his health. They're worried about him. They're worried about his safety. But here's what he says. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear to the whole palace guard and to everything, everyone that I'm in chains for Jesus. And because I'm in chains, some people are proclaiming the gospel uh, without fear, more boldly. Now, and then he says, you know, I know that some people are just pr proclaiming Jesus to stir up trouble for me. But listen to this. But what does it matter? The most important thing is that in every way, whether false motives are true, Christ is preached. See, what Paul cares about, what Paul's deepest why, he it's Jesus. And all Paul really wants, the reason for his life, is that people find out about Jesus. And even if he's in prison, and even if people have all the wrong motives, people are talking about Jesus. And he says, because of this, I rejoice. See, Paul... Paul's purpose, his why is deeper, it's weightier than the, the discomfort, the wind and the waves of his circumstances. Paul wants people to know Jesus. Paul, and even deeper than that, Paul just wants Jesus. He just wants to be with Jesus. Right, listen to this. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, what does he mean by deliverance? Does he mean, I hope that I get out of prison? Do I, do I hope that they release me? He doesn't know. But listen to this. What I hope is that I will be in no way ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Paul doesn't know if he's going to live. He doesn't know if he's going to die but it doesn't matter to him because he knows that either way, 
God is going to be glorified. And then he says this, I'm torn between the two, living and dying. I desire to be to depart and to be with Jesus, which is better by far. See, Paul, Paul is, I mean, just think of him. He's stuck in this, in this, in this imprisonment. He's chained to a Roman guard. The guard probably isn't even wearing deodorant. It's hot and the stinky in the summers. Paul would prefer to be with Jesus because that is the purpose. Later on in the book, he says, I just want to know him. I just want to know him. Chapter 3, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He says, I, I consider everything else a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. See, Paul is connected to that purpose. And when you're that connected to the anchor purpose of your life, the result is resilient joy. There's this amazing theological document from the Reformation, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's, it's fantastic, but if you had to memorize only one part of it, um, it is the first, the first question. Um, catechisms are a question and answer. And so the first question is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the overriding deepest purpose of being human? And the answer is this, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose? That, by the way, this is not just Paul's purpose. This is all of our purpose. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is what Paul says. He says, my imprisonment is going to bring glory to Jesus, and I'm going to get to enjoy him one way or the other. See, Paul, friends, has come into profound alignment with his deepest purpose as a human being. And it's our purpose, too. It's everybody's deepest purpose. Not everyone recognizes it or embraces it or understands it, but Paul does, and he surrenders to it. And when we do that too, the result is joy. Now, as, as I'm talking about joy, one thing I just want to clarify, joy doesn't mean we're happy all the time. Joy, joy is not like some, um, you know, it's not some exhilarating, uh, you know, ecstatic dance club uh, experience all the time. In fact, often, frequently, joy coexists with sadness and grief and loss and pain. Joy, joy is not fundamentally a feeling, but it's a deep sense of well-being that results from knowing that our, our lives are rooted in Jesus as our purpose and our primary relationship. And, and this, this deep sense of well-being blooms even in the shadow of pain and suffering and death. Now, you know, it's not just Paul that lived with joy. There are, there are people in our own time, in our own world, right around us that have, have lived lives marked by joy. And as I think about someone, I, uh, my mind is drawn to my mother-in-law, Hallie, who um, uh, uh, lived with joy in spite of dying far too young from a, a wasting um, disease. Hallie had this terrible uh, my mother-in-law, terrible neurological disease called multiple systems atrophy. Avoid it at all costs. Um, it, it disabled her autonomic nervous system. Um, eventually took away from her the, the 
ability to do anything, um, except that her mind and her spirit and her emotions were fully intact. She just was was trapped in her body, couldn't communicate. One of the last things that we she probably did was wrote a letter to her girls. Um, you know, but people that um, people that that watched Hallie, even though um, she was just there and and it was hard to communicate, could not avoid being aware that there was this profound peace, even joy about her, this rooted and groundedness. Um, and um, when Sarah, after she died, Sarah found this letter that Hallie wrote. It was to be to be read after her death. And uh, I just want to read a part of it to you because um, it's amazing. So here's how she starts. Let me say that first trite, often unhelpful saying, I'm sorry for your loss. And I think this is just hilarious that here's literally the loss herself uh, telling her daughters, I'm sorry for your loss. She says, honestly, I am. I wish I could hug you and let you hear and feel the mother blessing. Oh, honey, it's going to be all right because it is going to be in spite of the pain you feel right now. Hallie says, someone told me that grief for a loved one is like an amputation. You never forget the loss, but the pain slowly goes away and you eventually learn to survive without the limb. And boy, has that been true. Um, But listen to what Hallie says next. She says this, and I hear the Apostle Paul in this. She says, I am not sorry for myself. My journey has ended. My story is complete, and we know who wins. I wish I could describe to you the glory and, get this, joy I am experiencing. But now as I write to you, I only know it by faith in the Lord Jesus, who loves me and has never left my side. See, there he is, Jesus. That's the reason that Hallie was full of joy, is Jesus. She knows she's going to be with him. And she knows that's what's the most important. That is her deepest why. And that's why she suffered with such grace, dignity, and yes, even joy. So friends, as we close this morning, we don't have to languish. Even if the world around us is languishing, joy is our birthright. We can have joy even in suffering because joy is a choice. It's a choice. Joy is the fruit of choosing the right thing to be most important to us. It's the result of choosing Jesus to be our deepest why. Viktor Frankl writes, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And so, friends, we get to choose what will be most important to us. We get to choose our why, our deepest why. And it's our most important choice. A few weeks ago, I I visited our friend Emily, uh, Sister Emily, in the hospital. Emily gave me permission to share this story. Um, And we need to pray for her. She's had some some health challenges recently. And, And in this particular moment, by the way, it was an incredibly difficult situation I just want to shout out to Christian. Christian, you are a good man. What an incredible, faithful, loving, patient husband who was right there with her the whole time. Emily, as I got to her hospital room, had a high fever, um, an unclear diagnosis. Uh, she'd been in the hospital for several days in and out. I don't, I don't even know if she even remembers me being there. 
I think she did, but I was, I was struck by a couple things, four, four things actually. First of all, Emily said, when I came in, she said, yo, or you, which is classic. Second, Emily, Emily was thinking about others. She was thinking about her husband, Christian. She was thinking about her nurses and doctors and fellow patients. She was praying for them. She wanted them to experience God's love. It reminds me of Paul in prison, thinking about the Philippians, praying for them. Third, Emily was full of joy. Now, she wasn't happy per se. She wasn't doing well uh, physically. She obviously didn't want to be there. She was a, a little bit delirious. But, um, but there was a deep sense of well-being in her spirit. And she told me that it's good. It's good in my soul. And it was because she was full of joy. And the last thing I remember, this is, is the reason for her joy. Her deepest why is Jesus. And so, you know, I said her first words to me were, yo, but the next words were, she said, yo, we're building an altar of the presence of God in this hospital, on my hospital bed. Emily was building an altar of prayer and worship in the hospital. That's what she told me. I was like, yo, Emily, you could have just built it here without, you know, getting sick or whatever. But Emily, um, that was why she was there. I mean, she was there because she was sick, but she's there because she's building an altar of prayer. Emily was sensing the presence and the love and the comfort of Jesus, even as she languished physically in the hospital. And she wanted others to experience the love and presence of Jesus with her. And so I don't know what you call that, but you know, let's call it awesome. And I don't know about you, but I want that. And we were made for that. And it all starts with our why. So what's your why this morning, friends? What is the deepest why of your life? We were made for Jesus to be our deepest why. He created us. He made us. He made you for himself. And when all of us wandered off to try to find our own meaning, our own purpose, he came looking for us. He became human so we could know him. And he gave his life for us so that, and, and it says that, Jesus did that for the joy set before him, right? He endured the shame and the pain of the cross. It's, he, he made us so that, so that we could be his joy and he could be our joy and so that we could be connected, rooted to him like a boat to an anchor. And so some of us this morning, the, the invitation, friends, is just to surrender to Jesus as our deepest why. Maybe you're here this morning, you never had a relationship with God. Um, that's, why, that's why we exist, friends. And you know what? The other whys are going to leave us empty. They're going to cause us to languish. But this morning, we can connect to that anchor. We can connect to Jesus as the purpose of our lives, and the fruit will be joy. For some of us, we've been following Jesus, and you, you know, this morning, we just need to choose him again. Those other whys, like like weeds in a garden have, have crept in and crowded him out. The lesser wise are, are sapping our joy. But this morning, we can come back to the Lord and choose Jesus again as the deepest why of our lives. And if we do, the fruit is going to be resilient, unstoppable joy. Like Paul had, like my mother-in-law Hallie had, like Sister Emily has, a joy that nothing not trials, not suffering, not even death can snuff out.
Amen.